Well, good morning. (laughs) So good to be with you guys here this morning and get to share from God's Word. And it's also great to be led in worship by the worship team. I'm always up here every Sunday, but every once in a while it's it's great to just get to sing out with you guys and be led in worship. So thank you, worship team, for doing that. So here we are continuing in our series on the Upper Room Discourse out of the book of John, picking up where Pastor Raj left off last week. And I'd like to read that to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told, I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. So we've been having a lot of uh, stormy weather here lately. Is it raining for any of you guys whenever you came to church? Was it wet? And it's always nice whenever the weather just happens to coincide with what you're going to be preaching on, because here we're met with the peace of God through the storm. And if you think about the world in which we live, many words could be used to describe it. But I guarantee you that peaceful would not be one of them. In fact, I would venture to say that we live in a world of fear. It seems like we're always panicked about something. There's always a new kind of scare that's out there. The first panic on a wide scale that I remember was back in 1999. I was in middle school then. And this was the Y2K scare. You guys remember that? Anyone? And I remember that the computers were all going to go haywire because of the transition from 99 to 00. People thought the world was going to end. So I remember people stocking up on generators, food, and supplies. And the evangelical world even climbed on board. This was at the height of all the left-behind stuff. So the rapture was supposed to happen on January 1st, 2000. And I even remember those Christian t-shirts that said, Y2K, yield to the king. Anyone ever have one of those? And of course, this turned out to be nothing. Then a couple years later, we had 9-11, which really was something. And in the following years was the war on terror, in which we had this paranoia about Islamic terrorism. And then jump ahead a few years to 2012. You guys remember this scare, whenever the world was supposed to end because of some prediction on the Mayan calendar. I think they even came out with a movie about that. I never saw it. But of course, the world didn't end then. And then here recently, we had the pandemic in 2020, which again was something serious. And it almost literally had the entire world paralyzed with fear. And we're still feeling some of the effects of that here today. And just read the news, pay attention to what's going out in the world, and the headlines are just coming at us, one after the other. It seems that sadly there's always some news headline about a mass shooting or a hate crime, or we hear about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, and we can't help but be alarmed and be 
in fear. And the disciples themselves, they were living in their own world of fear around the time of the Upper Room Discourse. They had just received a headline that put them in a state of panic. Jesus was saying to them that he was going away, and where he was going, they could not follow. And so the disciples are now here in a state of panic. It doesn't say it in John's gospel, but you can picture them interjecting or at least thinking stuff like, but Jesus, how can you leave? How can you just up and leave and do this to us? What are we going to do? Who else is going to calm the storms on the Sea of Galilee whenever we're out boating and fishing? Who else is going to look out for us financially and make the coin appear in the fish? Who else is going to keep us from going hungry like whenever you fed the 5,000 and the 4,000? What are we going to do? To which Jesus responds to their fears saying, Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He also says something very peculiar after that. He says, he says, if you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So what is he talking about there? What does he mean? Is he saying the disciples don't really love him? Not quite, although it does show their failure in their attempts to love him. But what Jesus is doing is he is pointing out the self-focus that exists in the disciples. They're not worried about what's best for Jesus, what's in his own best interests. They're looking out for themselves. What are we going to do? They want Jesus to make them comfortable, to be that stability in their way of life, what they've known for the past three years. And that's what fear does. Fear causes us to have a self-focus rather than a focus on God. And it's true, isn't it? Whenever we get bad news or we fear that something's going to happen, we start to panic, we start to scramble, we become so preoccupied with our worries, with our stresses, that we often forget about God and He doesn't even factor into the equation or the decision-making. And we become so fixated on our problems here and now. It's like Peter whenever he was walking on the water. As long as his eyes were on Jesus, he was fine. But then he's walking along here. Oh, these waves, they don't look too friendly. This water is deep. And then he starts to sink. And that's what happens to us whenever we give in to our fear. D.A. Carson said the failure of these first disciples, sad to say, has often been repeated in the church where Christians have been far more alert to their own griefs and sorrows than to the things that bring their master joy. And that is so true, isn't it? And it's pointless to try to fear and scramble and try to preserve ourselves. It's like Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And this is not to say that God doesn't care about our griefs and our sorrows or that they're not important, because they are, and God does care about them. In fact, Jesus lived through all of our griefs and, and sorrows. He is the high priest who is sympathetic to our plight here on earth. But all the more reason for us to keep our eyes on Jesus and not on ourselves. 
Jesus is also showing us something else about what fear does. He's showing us that fear renders us immobile to the call of God upon our lives. And he points at this whenever he tells the disciples, do not be afraid. And the original Greek translates into something like, do not cower or be cowardly. Do not shrink back. And Jesus had not equipped the disciples for fear. For three years, he'd been pouring into them, mentoring them, teaching them. He even sent them out with authority to go preach and drive out demons. Jesus did not set them up to run away in fear, although we'll see that they did not live up to the calling on which, uh, that God placed upon their lives. The stories of the heroes of the faith, such as the famous Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews, those stories are not there because of cowering in fear, because that's the opposite of stepping forward in faith. I'm reminded of the, the one servant. You remember that parable, the parable of the talents? The master was giving his servants these sums of money, and they were supposed to take it and invest. And he gives one talent to this one servant, and he becomes afraid. So what does he do? He goes and buries his talent. He's unproductive and idle throughout all this time. And then the master comes back, and he's not too happy. We don't want to be like that with our lives. We don't want to be so fearful that we detach and that we go out and miss out on the wonderful things that God wants to do in and through us. We, not, we might not be living in outright rebellion against God. We might go to church most Sundays, listen to His radio, like spiritual posts on social media, try to be a good person, but we're not growing spiritually. Our prayer life is sporadic at best. Our scripture reading is limited to what we see on social media by our friends. We stay at home and we don't go out and use the gifts that God has given us because we are held captive by our fears. And that's not what we were designed for. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. So what is the antidote to fear? Well, peace, of course. Peace is the opposite of fear. And if you want peace, the world's got plenty of options to choose from, like a buffet. The world might tell you something like, if you have this much money in the bank, you've got this retirement plan, you're working this job, you'll have peace. Or if you have this circle of friends, you'll have peace. You should live in this part of town, your kids go to this school, you'll have peace. If you're doing this with your body, exercising, eating these foods, doing these meditations, you'll have peace. If the political landscape looks like this, you'll have peace. And these things can all be good things. But what do they all have in common is that they're temporal. They're dependent on the circumstances. It's like the stars need to align in order for peace to work. And what kind of peace is that? It's like that one song. You guys know that one song from the musical Oklahoma? 
oh, what a beautiful morning, oh, what a beautiful day, I've got a beautiful feeling. Yeah, everything's going my way. And it's not too hard to have peace whenever everything is going our way. The other day, it was in the morning, and Heidi and I were getting the kids ready to go. We say, hey, put your shoes on, and their shoes are all in the shoe rack where they're supposed to be. Now, that might not sound like a big deal, but in the Brimer house, that's a score right there. Because a lot of days, we're like, all right, kids, get, let's get ready. We got to go. Get your shoes on. They go to the shoe rack. I can't find my shoes. Where'd you put them last? We find one shoe at one end of the house and the other shoe in Virginia. And it's like we're so late, we're scrambling to get out of the door, and then we barely make it to where we need to on time. So on those days, whenever all the shoes are in place, we're like the Kool-Aid guy coming through the wall. Oh yeah, this is going to be a good day. Or it's like those Sundays. Typically, I'm up here leading worship and singing and stuff. And so I'll come here early on Sunday for our pre-service rehearsal. And on those days, whenever... I get here, my guitar is already in tune. I don't need to tune it up. I make it through that first song without cracking and sounding like a dying cat. I go out to the lobby over there, and they got cinnamon rolls. They didn't have cinnamon rolls today, so I don't think all is right with the world. (laughs) But you get what I'm saying. They're very trivial examples. But you know what I'm saying in that it's so easy to have peace whenever everything is going our way. But what about whenever they're not? What about whenever you get the news from your doctor that's distressing? What about whenever the job you have is lost? The stock market crashes. Your friends turn on you. What's happening in Washington is going the complete opposite of how you want them to go. What then? Where then is your peace? You see, all these things, disease, famine, heartache, these are the products of a sinful world. And a sinful world cannot offer true peace. Try as it might, It might be good for a time, but it will run out and it will not last. There is a world out there that is filled with so much fear. And the reason for that is that this life is all they have to hold on to. They don't have the promise of an eternity with no more tears or suffering or pain. They don't have a perfect unity with all believers to look forward to as they are joined in in endless praise. The best that they can do is ride the wave while it's still high, brace yourself for the fall, hopefully catch the next wave, accrue all that you can for this life, look out for yourself, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And if that is your outlook, then I can understand why you would live your life in fear. It's interesting to think how the disciples would have thought of fear. They were living in this period of time known as Pax Romana, Roman peace. And this is a time in the Roman Empire that was filled with a remarkable 
political and economic stability. Sure, there were skirmishes and uprisings, but the amount of peace that there was in this time, this period of about 200 years, it was unheard of. It was a peace that was bought and maintained by a mighty sword. And according to popular Jewish opinion of the time, true peace would come through a mightier sword as they would have for themselves, once again, their own nation. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. Jesus gives not as the world gives, but instead Jesus gives us a greater peace, true peace. Before we talk about what peace this is, I want to go back to a statement that he made earlier. The Father is greater than I. What's he talking about? What does he mean? Why does he just throw this in there? If you're a student of church history, you might have heard of Arius. He was this priest that lived in the 4th century, and he proposed this doctrine that Jesus was, in fact, a created being, created by God the Father, with some divine attributes, but ultimately less than the Father. And, of course, we know that that is wrong. Thankfully, they rejected that at the Council of Nicaea, whenever they were establishing what they believed as a church. And people have been tripping over that ever since. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He is referring to his former state, because we know that he came and he was made lower than the angels. He humbled himself. He lived among us. But before that, he was in glory, right alongside God the Father, in all glory and splendor. He is only here on this earth for a time, and then he is going to return, and he's going to be lifted up, exalted at the right hand of the Father, to where every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus is Lord. All right, so this is an interesting theology lesson and all, but what does this have to do with peace? This has everything to do with peace. Because if Jesus is not glorified, we don't get peace. You see, this, this pattern that the disciples were in, following Jesus along, going on their adventures together, this was not sustainable. This could not be completed in this could not complete them in the long run. Jesus had to go away. A couple chapters later, Jesus will say, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So you see, this is a win-win situation. Jesus is going to return to the Father. He's going to be glorified. But he's not going to leave us empty-handed. Pastor Roger talked about last week, Jesus leaving us with his Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit comes peace. True peace is a spirit-filled peace. And Jesus is talking to to the disciples. He's using very transactional language here. Kind of like whenever you reach your deathbed and you're parting out your wealth towards your children. Whenever I go be with the Lord, I will have left my kids with my guitars, my smokers and grills, Heidi is going to be glad that they're out of the house. 
And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, upon my death, you will receive this gift of my peace. And it's not just one kind of peace, but two different kinds of peace. The first kind of peace is called peace with God. In our former states, we were at enmity with God. We had our fists shaken at God. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that apart from Christ, we are hostile to God. But then whenever Jesus died upon the cross, it was finished. The temple curtain was torn in two. And so now we can approach the most holy place. No longer as enemies, not on civil okay terms, but now we can come before the throne of glory as friends, as sons and daughters, as heirs of the inheritance of the promise of glory. That's what it is to have peace with God, to be in unity with Him. <clears throat> the second kind of peace is the peace of God. And this is the peace that we all crave as we go through the trials of this life. This is a peace that is not dependent on ideal circumstances, but a peace that exists and even thrives in the midst of them. This is the peace that Stephen had as he gazed toward heaven and saw the Lord right before he would be stoned to death for his faith. This is the peace that Paul and Silas had as they were locked in the Philippian jail, singing hymns of praise. You see, this peace, it doesn't matter if things are going well or not around us, but this peace guards us and keeps us in spite of it all. I heard this story <clears throat> about this art contest. And the contestants were, were instructed to paint this picture of their idea of peace. And so a lot of beautiful paintings were submitted. Some of lush, green, rolling hills. Some of a still pond. Others of a colorful sunset. But the one that won looked a lot different. And this is, you can actually Google this painting. It's a true story. But this painting depicted this rocky shore, black rocks, stormy waters around it. And there was water going over part of it like a waterfall. Black clouds. It was raining. Lightning crashing. It looked like anything but peace and serenity. But upon closer look, you could see in the crag of a rock, a bird's nest. And in that nest were little chicks, peaceful and safe beneath the canopy of their mother's wings. And that's what the peace of God looks like. Several times in the Psalms, we are told to sing beneath the shadow of his wings. That's what Jesus does. He gives us this peace that even when everything is falling apart around us, we can be secure. One of the things that I love most about being a pastor is getting to hear your stories of God's faithfulness in your life. And I've heard stories of heartache, of loss, of terminal illness, I've heard of you all going through things 
that you should not be at peace right now because of that. You should be living your lives in fear. You should be crippled by doubt. You should be without hope because it doesn't make sense to have peace after everything that you have been through. Peace does not make sense. The peace of God does not make sense. And to this world, it does not make sense. That's why Paul calls it the peace that surpasses understanding in Philippians 4. But at the same time, his peace does make sense. And his peace is possible because God is in control. Keep in mind that as this is going on in the upper room, Judas is over here, away from the eleven. He's meeting with the Pharisees right now. Satan's already entered into him, and he's carrying out his plot of betrayal. 27, 28, 29, 30 pieces of silver. All right, Judas, tell us, where can we find Jesus? Well, I know that they're going to be at the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, it's going to be dark. How do we know which man to arrest? The one that I kiss is the man. Arrest him. All right, you've been very helpful. Thank you for your time. Here's the money as agreed. Take it and go. Then the mobs will come and chaos will ensue, all culminating with the death of Jesus upon the cross. This hardly looks like God is in control, does it? It looks like the enemy is in control. But what Jesus is telling his disciples here is don't be alarmed. This is all actually going according to plan. This is supposed to happen. I'm telling you this right now so that you will believe. If I were to ask you right now, who put Jesus to death? Outside of who actually physically put him to death, what would your answer be? Some might say, well, the enemy, Satan, put Jesus to death. Others would say, we put Jesus to death by our sins. I would say that both of those are incorrect. Did Satan want Jesus put to death? Absolutely. Did our sin make it necessary for Jesus to die? Of course it did. But we can't say that either our sins or the power of the enemy overpowered Jesus, took him captive, and thrust him helplessly on the cross. Jesus was on the cross because he was obedient to the will of his Father who crushed him, who put him to death by his righteous wrath that was supposed to be for us, but instead upon his only Son on our behalf. So this is all happening according to God's plan. Satan here is a pawn in the divine plot of God, playing right into what he's supposed to. John Piper says, Satan is not the explanation of Calvary. Obedience is. Jesus is completely in control. And you can see what's going on here. The Father set the plan in motion which was carried out by the Son to death, who was then made alive in the Spirit, who has now been given to us 
to give us peace. God was in every way control, in control. And if God was in control over the darkest storm in all of history, he will be in control over all of our storms in this life. Just as the enemy wanted to do as much damage as he could with Jesus upon the cross, he wants to use our griefs and our sorrows to turn us against God, to get us to fear and to doubt, to cower. But God wants to use those exact same things to bring about his purposes in your life, to bring about the opposite result of what the enemy wants for you, to use Satan against himself so that he can accomplish his purposes, so that he can be glorified, and so that he can give you his true peace. You see, fear is saying that God is not enough to meet me in my time of need. But peace is knowing and believing that God is in control, no matter what our circumstances tell us. In a couple of chapters, Jesus will say to them, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart in that tribulation, for I have overcome the world. And what better place to be than safe in the arms of the one who has overcome the worst that the world could ever throw at us? He gives us true peace. So there's three things that we should know as we seek his peace, as we respond to what Jesus has said here. The first is that the emotions of fear will come, but we do not need to be controlled by them. Having the peace of God does not mean that your heart is not going to race at times. It doesn't mean that you'll be that you, that you won't fall short of breath or that you won't lose sleep some nights. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that for some of you that you won't experience anxiety that you might even need some treatment for. These things do not, are not an indication of a lack of faith. Feeling these things Having anxiety, that's not, that's, not, that's not to say that you don't have faith. They're emotions, they're feelings. And while we're thankful for the resources and gifts that God has given us to help us with our infirmities on earth, we do not put our trust in them, but rather we put our trust in God. And while the feelings come to us that can be so loud and so convincing, those feelings that say that God is not in control, that he is not enough, that he has forgotten about you. Don't trust in them. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Don't listen to and be controlled by these emotions that will throw lies at you, but rather be under the influence of the Holy Spirit who loves you and who cannot lie. So the second thing is, what do you do whenever you're faced with these feelings and sensations of fear? What I'm going to say to you is fight back. Fight your fear. 
with praise and thanksgiving that is rooted in God's Word. Paul tells us in Philippians, do not be anxious for anything, but with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. In Psalm 63, David is on the run in the midst of danger. And in the thick of it all, he says, I will praise you as long as I live. In your name, I lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of food. Whenever the enemy tries to taunt you about the sins of your past and confront you with fear of failure, say, I praise you, Lord, that as far as the east is from the west, you have removed my transgressions from me. And I praise you, God, that you have filled me with your spirit to produce in and through me the fruit of righteousness. Whenever your finances are tight and the enemy is telling you, you're not going to make it. God has forgotten about you. He doesn't care about you. Say, I praise you and thank you, Lord, that as you care for the sparrows and provide for them, you care for me so much more and will provide for me. I shall not want. Whenever you're being faced with infirmities, whenever you're faced with illness, things that have been thrust upon your life that are causing you to suffer, and the enemy is telling you that it's hopeless, take it to God and say, I praise you, Lord, that in my weakness you are strong. You see, it's a lot more difficult to be fearful and self-focused whenever our eyes are upon our Savior and our heart is overflowing with praise. The last thing is that it's not too late to have the peace of God. Look at these 11 disciples who have been given this wonderful gift, this announcement of the peace that they were going to get. Did they take it and own it? Heck no. What did they do whenever the mobs came? They scattered. Peter denied Jesus three times. They locked themselves away, bolting the door. They did not live up to what they had been equipped for. But if you turn the pages just a little bit, you'll arrive at the book of Acts. And you'll see these same 11 guys filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel, making disciples, writing epistles and gospels. And according to church tradition, all except for the Apostle John would suffer a martyr's death. These 11 cowardly men, now respected today as heroes of the faith. And they could have only done what they did because Jesus had favor upon them and he gave them the peace to be able to stand in the worst of adversity. And just like the disciples, it's not too late for you to have the peace of God. If your fear has been keeping you from stepping out and being used for his glory, you can call upon his name and he will give you peace by his Holy Spirit. For some of you, you might need to have the peace with God. You've been in the world, you've tried what the world has to offer, but it's given you nothing real and you crave something that is real. If that's you, 
I would love to talk with you and pray with you or any of the other pastors and elders to tell you what it is to have peace with God. We've been through a lot in the past few months. Whenever the Lord took Pastor Mitchell from us, we've cried tears. I've cried tears. We've got a lot of question marks in front of us. But nothing is happening that God was not already aware of. Nothing has been a surprise to him. And I believe that God has a, a wonderful plan for Cary Alliance Church and that he will be glorified. So fear not, brothers and sisters, for our God is with us. Have peace. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with peace, that peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that through the most raging of storms in our life, that you would be that steadfast anger, anchor that holds us and that keeps us safe, Lord. May we rest beneath the shadow of your wings and fear no evil, because we know that you are with us, Lord. God, would you give us that peace in our storms? Would you help us to keep our eyes upon you, not to look to the left or to the right, not to listen to those voices that scream at us to turn away from you, but to listen to your voice as you sing over us and quiet our souls, O oh God. Give us that peace that only comes through the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.